Well, good morning, Emmanuel. Over the past month and a half, we took a journey looking at some of the famous and less well-known martyrs of the Christian faith. People who believed that the message of Jesus was so real and so true and so transformative that they were willing to give their lives for it. And all of this culminated in us spending Holy Week together, reflecting through the eyes of Peter on the final days of Jesus's life and on his resurrection. Peter, who was so committed to Jesus that he had the bravery to do what seemed crazy, to step out of a boat onto the water because he trusted that when Jesus spoke a word, it was real and it was true. Peter, whose faith wavered as he was confronted with the reality of following Jesus in its most unpopular moment, denying the God that he had actually walked with and ate with and talked with as he stood in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And Peter, who was lovingly restored by the Lord as they sat together along the sea after his resurrection, who Jesus called the rock and who Jesus said he would build his church on. And build Jesus's church, Peter did. Today, we start a new series called Counterculture, where we're looking at the words that Peter wrote to a Christian community so many years ago. Words to help this Christian community and us press more fully into what it means to live out our faith as fully committed followers of Jesus in a society that often presses against the very things that we have been called to do. Words that were written before Peter likely gave his own life as a martyr for the gospel in Rome. What good news could lead Peter through commitment and wavering and recommitment to a commitment that would lead to his own martyrdom? Well, when Peter stood with Jesus on the shores and he experienced his resurrected body and he had a conversation with God in flesh that led to his redemption and his restoration, and he was called to build Jesus's church right where he stood, Peter began to understand just a few things. Peter understood that the resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't just good news for someday, but it was good news for today. That the resurrection, it didn't just impact eternity, but it impacted time here and time now that it was good news that was worth staking his entire reputation, even his entire life on. Peter understood that what happened on the cross, it wasn't a get out of jail card, it was a get into life card. It's the invitation to experience life as it has always meant to be lived, to be freed up from buying into the lie that anything else can lead to our salvation to get to press more fully into the reality that there is a kingdom at work in this world that we are invited to be a part of. And this may feel like a blinding flash of the obvious, but I would wager that most of us forget this crucial fact all the time. Most of us forget in the midst of a nine to five and bills to pay and kids to take care of and appointments to shuttle through and loneliness and stress to manage and a household to run and relationships to maintain that the gospel is an invitation to experience restoration and hope now, not just in the future. That the kingdom of God, it is really good news for those of us that feel lonely or poor 
or cast down or forgotten or left behind or marginalized, that we're invited to experience the life that we long for most right here and right now. Eugene Peterson wrote this book called This Hallelujah Banquet, and it was published after his death, and he said this. He said, here we have one of those paradoxes that are strewn all through the Christian life of faith, that until we pass the martyr test, we live neither deeply nor widely. Until we're ready to die for Christ, we can't live for him freely, exuberantly, openly, if we spend all of our energy trying to protect our interests, preserve our safety, and to negotiate and compromise with the opposition in order to keep what we have at all costs, we will live meagerly. But if we live at risk, giving up all in witness and commitment and love, we are released from death to live in the power of the resurrection. We want to live both deeply and widely, not just someday, but today. And Peter, the disciple and the martyr, he understood how to get there. You see, Peter wrote these two letters, first and second Peter to the Christian church. And first Peter in particular was written to the Christians scattered across five regions in Asia Minor. And to the Christians in these five regions, he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. Dispersion meaning those who are scattered, urban and rural, large city and small, they're spread out from one another and he writes to them all. But the word that Peter uses to call them exiles, it's unique. The word is actually only used five times in the entire Bible. Three of those five times are in the New Testament and two of those five times are in the letter of First Peter. Rather than meaning exiles in some political sense, like people who have been physically cast out and forcibly removed from a place, the word here, peripedimos, it's used here and in Hebrews to refer to those whose real home is in heaven, but who sojourn on the earth. Those who are living within a culture, yet are radically called to a life that is at odds with that culture itself. Can you relate? Every Christian is an exile. Every Christian lives within a society whose truth and text and saving Messiah is different than its own. So if you have ever felt like you're engaging in a culture that's often at odds with the life and the teaching of Jesus, or like you're being challenged in your work to forego the sacred rhythms of rest that were given to us by our Lord, or you're facing the temptation to compromise with culture, or you feel like you're surrounded by entertainment that exploits the image of God in your brothers and your sisters, you are not alone, not today, and not ever in the history of the church. Every single Christian is an exile. The strange paradox of being in the family of God, of being invited into what we call God's kingdom today, is that we live in both worlds. We belong to another place and yet we're here in this place, in this moment, this place with all of its trials and its temptations towards sin. And we're called to and we're committed to both. We are going there to the kingdom that will never pass away. And yet we're also called and committed here 
the good and the care and the welfare of this city, of this place. Being exiled is an invitation. To this exiled community, Peter begins this invitation with these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Being exiled is an invitation to hold to the promise. The promise that no matter what happens here on this earth, we are headed toward an inheritance that is being held in heaven for us. That can't change, that can't lose its value, that can't rot away, that can't disappear, and that cannot be taken from us. The promise that all of what happens here, it is not the end of the story. That all of our sacrifices will one day be worth it. That our beliefs are true. That the losses will be resurrected. That our hope is assured. And that the resurrection did happen and it will happen again. The promise that all of our work here, it is not in vain because right here is not the end of the story. And holding to this promise, it frees us up from having to hold all of our hope in what happens here, which allows us to live fully, to live deeply, to live widely, knowing that we will see what we have been promised, the final salvation of absolutely all things. Peter goes on to say in verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This life for exiles that Peter offers, it is countercultural. We don't desire suffering. I don't know a single person who desires suffering, who wakes up in the morning and wants to experience it. In fact, when we experience suffering, we often think that we have done something wrong. But what if we reframe that? What if we viewed suffering and challenges and temptations and the wrestling with ourselves and our faith as a sign? that we're practicing faithfulness to what we believe as a sign that we're actually on the right track. Covenant pastor and theologian, Dennis Edwards, who wrote a commentary on 1 Peter, he says this. He says, suffering is not accidental, but it's purposeful and therefore necessary. The New Testament teaches that suffering is part of the Christian experience, especially in light of the end of days. For example, he says, Jesus warns that suffering must take place. Paul extorted that to believers that we must go through many hardships. And he also wrote to the Philippians that God grants suffering just as he grants faith. Peter later admonishes his readers not to be surprised at their fiery ordeal. The purpose of suffering is to bring praise and glory and honor 
at the final days. So don't be surprised when you face suffering or challenges because of your faith. Because living as exiles is an invitation to see the reality of our faith. It's an invitation to see the sureness of what we believe, to rejoice that we hold to something so firmly that we're willing to hold it even among intense pressure, to continue to refine it and press into it and build our convictions around it. In fact, nothing has refined my own personal faith more than being a millennial pastor who's faced every day with the challenge to hold onto my faith-based convictions or to fit in just a little bit better with culture because nothing has driven me to scripture more, driven me to Jesus more, driven me to repentance and prayer and worship and seeking more. And all of that, rather than chip away at my faith foundations like we often think suffering does, has actually built my foundations even deeper, even stronger, even wider, made the ground that I stand on through faith and through God's word even more secure, even amongst cultural shifts and shakes. And Peter tells us that when we go through suffering like this and we're refined by it, in the middle of it, that we experience this, though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we do not now see him, we believe in him. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. We can have real joy in the middle of suffering knowing that in the middle of it, our souls are continuing to be refined and held firm in salvation. And that's why Peter uses this metaphor in this passage of the refining of gold, which unlike our salvation does pass away because as gold is being refined, the impurities and the bad additives, they're separated from it and just the pure metal, that which is most precious remains. So too with us, as we are refined by suffering, the pureness of our faith, it rises to the surface and it remains secure. Finally, living as exiles is an invitation to reshape our minds and reform our lives. Peter puts it this way in verses 13 through 21. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Because our faith and our hope is ultimately in God alone, we are invited to begin with our own personal reformation with our minds, separating what we think and what we believe from culture, reshaping our minds to reflect critically on it and to hold what culture says up in light of the gospel. Rather than being, as scripture says in other places, blown back and forth from one idea and one trend to the next, we are called to be sober-minded, to take seriously this task of living the life of a Jesus follower, to set ourselves apart not only from culture, but also from who we were before we were redeemed. Dennis Edwards says this, he says, each of us has inherited an empty way of life from our ancestors, especially our first ancestor, Adam. And each of us needs to receive a new nature. And when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the spotless Lamb of God, we receive new lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will help us to develop new appetites so that we can separate from sinful habits of the past and we can move toward a life of holiness. And that separation, it starts in our minds as we exercise sober judgment and we have a respectful attitude towards God. And since right behavior will follow right thinking, we make a conscious choice to separate from those things that would drag us down and not lift us up. You see, right living, it's our grateful response to great grace because we've been given the opportunity to be reconciled to God through such a great sacrifice as the cross. The least we can do is to live in response to God in the middle of a broken society that needs to see the hope of the resurrection life. In fact, we're inviting you in this series to memorize verses 14 through 15 of chapter one with us. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. This right living, it's reflected in how we live among one another. As Peter says in verses 22 through 23, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding word of God. Jesus himself, he put it this way when asked what the greatest commandment was. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. If you want to live counterculture, love God love others. Imagine if in a culture of exploitation, we brought honor to the people around us. In a culture of loneliness, we were a family. 
made up of different people from all walks of life, young and old, married and single, rich and poor. In a culture of workaholism, what if we embraced the gift of rest? In a culture of anything goes, what if we believed that what we watch and what we listen to and what we look at, that it really does matter? What if in a culture of disrespect, we lifted up one another? Or in a culture of fighting and creating camps and staying in our separate camps, we actually cultivated a space where people who disagreed could find common ground at the foot of the cross. Or in a culture of pride, we relished in humility. In a culture of certainty, we embraced just a little mystery. And in a culture that rejects suffering, we embraced it as proof that our foundations are firm and secure. As you all know by now, one of my favorite theologians is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And one of my favorite things that he ever wrote comes from the cost of discipleship. And it has to do with what it looks like for us to live this exilic life. He said this to confess and testify the truth as it is in Jesus. And at the same time, to love the enemies of that truth, his enemies and ours, and to love them with the infinite love of Jesus Christ. It is indeed a narrow way to believe the promise of Jesus that his followers shall possess the earth. And at the same time to face our enemies unarmed and defenseless, preferring to incur injustice rather than to do wrong ourselves, it is indeed a narrow way to see the weakness and wrong in others. And at the same time to refrain from judging them, to deliver the gospel message without casting pearls before swine, it is indeed a narrow way. The way is unutterably hard. But if we behold Jesus Christ going before every step, we shall not go astray. He goes on to say that the very narrowness of this way, the very fact that it causes us to live strangely in a strange land, it assures us that the path that we are taking is right. So no, we don't have to fear being exiles. In fact, we're invited to embrace it and to live into it. And over the next six weeks, we're going to continue to dive into this important book for modern exiles. We're gonna look at specific ways we can live into the kingdom invitation that Peter offers the church in our culture today. Come back and join us.